0: As the seasons change, we tend to look forward with anticipation to what's to come, and meteorology is no different. Meteorological winter begins on December 1st every year, and in order to look ahead, we first have to examine the present conditions. Joining us today is Dr. Judah Cohen, Director of Seasonal Forecasting and Atmospheric and Environmental Research to discuss what's going on currently that has helped shape their winter outlook for the next season. Dr. Cohen, Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having
0: well, me. Well, Jude, I know Ms. Judas, so I'll just refer to him as Judah. but Dr. Cohen is actually one of our alumni of the TV show version of Weather Geeks as well. So it's really awesome to get him for a deeper dive on the Weather Geeks podcast. I have to start out with the question that I ask every single guest of the podcast. Yes. How'd you become a Weather Geek? <laughs> well,
1: I love snow. Uh uh, as a kid, I, I always used to look forward. I used to listen to weather forecasts on the radio, and TV, hoping to hear about the next snowstorm. Uh, I, I grew up, you know, people ask me where I where I grew up. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, not known for as a particularly snowy place, but I guess maybe I had enough to tease me, not too much to overwhelm me. Uh, and I just felt like growing up in a urban landscape you know, snow really transformed um you know my neighborhood and i thought it really became uh, you know, it was really beautiful magical um you know of course being in such a densely populated area the snow didn't stay pristine for long and it got, <laughs> it got ugly fast but uh but you know but certainly within that 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 day or two i just you know i just really found it magical and um, I, you know, I wanted to know uh, more about how the weather worked and really to try to forecast the snow is a really difficult thing to forecast. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, in the Rockies or downwind of the Great Lakes, it's a little easier. But, uh, but certainly here along the East Coast, for a lot of us, <clears throat> you know, it's always tricky and a lot of hedging with the forecasts. And uh, I, I don't really do short-term forecasts, but it's uh, still... Uh, I mean that's how it started.
0: Yeah, you, you know, and he he really is one of the top experts in winter weather, snow, polar vortex, and we'll talk a lot about those oh, topics you. here on the podcast today. Let me give you a little bit of his background. Uh, he's the director of seasonal forecasting at Atmospheric and Environment Research, a company called EER, which we'll talk about here momentarily. Also, a visiting scientist at MIT's Parson Lab. Yes,
1: yeah, uh, Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering.
0: Yeah, he's uh, affiliated with that uh, department at MIT. Uh, he works on impacts of snow cover and sea ice variability on winter climate, also interested in accelerated Arctic warming and its influence on weather here in the middle latitudes where we lived. And he received his Ph.D. from Columbia University and was also a postdoc at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Study. So very well informed colleague, someone that I look to, someone that I often refer to people when they contact me wanting yes, information me on weather. I recommend them the Judical. And so for, for our listeners that may not be familiar with AER, uh, tell us about what 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 your mission is.
1: Yeah, so. Uh, we. Yeah, we're trying, I guess, consult on environmental issues, but um, the company mostly is involved with writing software for satellites. So when you see those really great, great pictures of hurricanes, <laughs> you know, on the news or in the weather forecasts, uh, you know, AR is involved with that. Well, there are other products, but that—that's been the main source of revenue. Also, air quality. Um, there seems to be a growing area for the company. I myself kind of a little bit of an island to myself. I'm interested in long range forecasting and you know climate dynamics uh i'm part of the oceanography uh you know department there at are and, and most of the people in my department are actually oceanographers i'm the only atmospheric scientist really uh so but i think you know i think that's a, hopefully my company's happy with
0: that <laughs> oh i think they are certainly you've been there a while we, we are recording this right before December 1st as we go into what we know as meteorological winter. Obviously, most people would associate winter beginning uh, later in the month of December, but meteorologists and climatologists, we start the seasons at the begin, beginning of the month. It's a little bit easier for accounting and climatological studies and so forth. As you look at the seasonal outlook, I guess it's a two-part question, what do you see for the upcoming 2022 2023 winter? And then how do you go about making these types of seasonal outlook forecasts?
1: Oh, so maybe, maybe I'll start with the first part, the second part first. Uh, you know, how do we how do we go about it? So the one thing that everybody uses universally use for making these long-range forecasts are the sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific. You know, right along the equator, closer to the South American coast. It's called the El Nino Southern Oscillation. When it, you know, when the sea surface temperatures are warm or we call the warm phase, that's El Nino. When it, the sea surface temperatures are cold, that's La Nina. We We've actually have a three-peat La Nina here. So third, third winter in a row where we have a La Nina. Um, so that's. Really, how, how rare is that, by
0: the way, Jude? I've been hearing that's pretty that it's rare. rare. Uh,
1: I think it's happened one or two times in the record. Um, you know, so I guess maybe some of those uh, events is kind of borderline, but I, I think maybe maybe I counted once but I think I was looking again. I think I missed one, so this maybe the third of a th- three in a row. It doesn't happen too often with El Nino. I think it never happens, uh, uh, but so it, it's rare. I, I don't know that it makes it. You know that the first year is different than the second year is different than the third year, but so I think some people try to look into that. You know. Uh, you know, slice of that finely, but um, it's not—it's you know—it's not my expert, my sh- forte. You know, it's not what I'm strongest at, is uh, the enso forcing. But it has a very uh, canonical, or iconic signature across North America, with where it's colder to the northwestern part of North America and milder to the southeastern part of North America, um, and with the precipitation. You tend to get uh, the storm tracks a little further north, so like the polar jet, they say, is more active than the southern jet. Uh, so it tends to be more wet across the along the Canadian border, Pacific Northwest, the Great Lakes, into into the north, New England, and drier to the south. Uh, so that's why we have La Nina. You hear people worrying about drought in California per se. Um, you know, again, it might be dry in the southeast, and I think it's been a kind of a dry summer in the southeast. Am correct? So maybe there's maybe more worries than usual for uh, dry conditions in the southern U.S. But that, that, that's what's typically expected, and I, you know, I, I I don't disagree with that. And we put that in our model. That's part of the forecast. I don't. It's not the major input as far or predictor as far as temperatures. I think for precipitation. It's hard to beat, and so as a predictive, But as far as temperatures, like you kind of alluded to briefly mentioned in the intro, I really try to looking for clues for the polar vortex. I think that's much more uh, a better determinant. determinator, that's a word, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh uh or you know, kind of force of, of what our temperatures will be like. So uh if the polar vortex is kind of in a more active mode. And reaches into, you know, pump, you know, punches into the northern US. We tend to have a colder winter. And then if it stays, um, you know, further north and we can get into the pole vortex and, you know, the different configurations and contortions that it takes, and I'm happy to do that. But, um, you know, then we extend it. I think we stay mild, though, you know, with or without El Nino and La Nina. I do think, though, La Nina, El Nino will shift if it's cold or or mild, but especially if it's cold, we'll kind of focus the cold in different, you know, regions of the U.S. where, like we have La Nina. uh, I do think it favors the cold being further west. Uh, And if I was El Nino, I I, I think that that would favor the cold, making it further east, especially into the southeastern U.S.
0: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home?
1: at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than
0: that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh,
1: burger time.
0: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
1: I could stay here forever.
0: Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Judah Cohen from AER. He is really one of the best winter weather experts in the country, uh, in the world, as someone, again, that... You know, I'm, I'm an expert in this field, but not winter weather and cold. I, I tend to see what Judah Cohen's saying when when these types of questions about polar vortex and winter come come up and you, you just heard him talk about the polar vortex. Now, you as I, well as I do know, Judah, that in the last, say, decade or so, the polar vortex Got quite a bit of media attention. It became a thing to the broader public. You, you and I have known about it for some time because it's always been there. Right. Uh, but it certainly became a media buzzword in the same way that things like derecho and bombogenesis, things that have been around meteorology for some time, uh, but seem to become more prominent in the public lexicon. So Let's take this opportunity to give the listeners a little 101 on what the polar vortex is and why you say it is uh, really a driver of our, our potential for colder weather.
1: Yeah, so the polar vortex is an area of low pressure that sits right on top of the North Pole. It's So if you think of the atmosphere as being in two layers, uh, the bottom layer being the troposphere, that's where we live and, and where the weather occurs. And above that is the stratosphere. The polar vortex resides in the stratosphere. You know, as centered on the North Pole. And again, it's a low-pressure system, so like all low-pressure in the Northern Hemisphere, the circulation is counterclockwise. So if, um, in its normal state, is you have typically have a strong circular polar vortex, wow. so uh, you have the the low-center over the North Pole, and then this kind of fast-flowing ribbon, a river of air that uh, circuit circumnavigates or circulates around the, this low-pressure across the... Well, centered around sixty degrees north, so maybe let's say southern Canada type uh, latitudes, uh, or you know, southern to so- central Canada, um, and it tends to flow in a very west east direction. Um, that's its normal, typical state. And, and when that happens, it tends to be milder in the U.S. because the the, the polar vortex can kind of be the most southern boundary of the of the really cold air. So if the vortex is very circular and it's quite a bit north, the cold air is sent to be bottled up over the Arctic regions. And then south of the polar vortex, you have milder air cir- you know, circulating.
0: One of the things, well, before you jump to that, so when I think about recent weather events, the Texas cold outbreak comes to mind. And yes. if I'm correct, uh, I believe that was a case where, I guess we had a, a an intrusion of really cold air and because of uh, is it a weakening of the polar vortex that allows these sort of intrusions of cold air? Yeah.
1: yeah. So I, I really do think it's with climate change, it gets more and more difficult to have uh, long duration cold or extreme cold, uh, disruptive snowstorms as well. So pretty much to have an extreme winter or severe winter weather, event, I think there has to be some kind of involvement of the polar vortex. Where it's been disrupted in some type of form, so um, the classic disruption of the polar vortex is called the sudden stratospheric warming because warm air rushes into the north towards the north pole, and the north pole kind of then gets you know knocked off its perch, Um, uh, and that could take two forms. It could be a where the pole vortex is displaced bodily, like it's, it's in, integrally whole, but just moved to a lower a latitude, since it's you know typically on the North Pole, if it gets moved, it's got to be to a lower latitude. Can be, I think, typically when you know when these big events happen, it's towards Eurasia, uh, less so to North America. And then the other form is the pole vortex split, which if you're looking at an animation of the pole vortex, is the most dramatic, where you have a parent vortex. And then it kind of gets pinched off into 2 daughter door-to-vortices. And they tend to stay over the continent. So one daughter vortex goes towards Eurasia. Another daughter vortex goes towards North America, typically Canada. Can, can make it into the U.S. as well sometimes. And I like to say where the cold air goes. I mean, so where the pole vortex goes, so goes the cold air. Um, and if you kind of use the analogy, I I use it, other people use it as well. Like uh, the pole vortex in a strong state is a spinning top where it's got a very fast, tight rotation it keeps the cold air with it. If it gets knocked around, and we can talk about what causes it to get knocked around, um, it will start to wobble, meander, and will go to different parts of the hemisphere, northern hemisphere, and where it goes, it tends to take the cold air with it. Um, so that's a classic. Uh, one thing that I've, I've been spending more time on uh, is a different configuration of the pole, where it's a more minor disruption, where it stretches or elongates like pulling on a rubber band. So it doesn't, it almost looks like a, a premature and aborted polar vortex split. Kind of pulls apart and it's getting pinched, but it really doesn't go, make it all the way. Right, so it takes on this very long, elongated configuration and it tends to elongate uh, from Siberia to uh, Eastern North America uh, and 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 so again, with that you know, again, that that the 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 polar vortex the circulation on the polar vortex kind of marks off the low, you know, this most southern uh, extent of the cold air and it gets stretched out. That cold air can go much further south than normal. And that's what happened actually in the Texas freeze of February 2021. It was a very um, uh, you know extreme event of this polar vortex stretching. And uh, you know, and I wrote a paper on it because when when the event first happened, everybody was attributing it to this sun stratospheric warming, this cla- more classical event, because one had happened in early January, but this, you know, the Texas freeze always took place in February. And the Sun stratospheric warming, I don't think by itself would have you know, resulted in the Texas freeze. But what happens is when you sometimes when you get the sun stratospheric warm, it becomes very favorable for setting up a stretching event. And then a stretching event happened in early February, and that delivered the you know that extreme cold. Into into Texas, and also you brought about the media. So the first year, the media used uh, the term polar vortex, and a lot of science, climate scientists were very kind of uh, against it. You know, had a uh, were you know re- resistant to that idea, and, and it was kind of used at based on our understanding, of the polar vortex was really used wrongly because we talk about a polar vortex and polar vortex bringing cold air. It's really at that time was uh, 2013, 2014 is associated with these sudden stratospheric warmings, and none had occurred that winter. But we had repeated stretching events of the polar vortex. So um, you know, so it, it has helped us. I think the community really recognize. Certainly, myself I'll speak for myself, but I think hopefully more community wide to recognize this kind of ignored or underappreciated, um, you know, kind of phase or configuration of the polar vortex disruption where it elongates the stretch. And so far we've had a couple of them, you know, this, this, this fall. Um so we had one in October and, and it brought some a record early freezes and some snow, even, brought, even down to the Southeast, I think. Uh, and then we had another one in November, which uh, maybe the most, it brought some, record cold too, but it also resulted in that Buffalo, you know, snow blitz there, you know, whatever is 80 inches there. Yeah,
0: Unbelievable snow totals with that uh, combination of this uh, scenario that you describe in the lake effect snow, the uh, associated fetches across the lake. But you said something that may be counterintuitive to some of our listeners. You said, I believe, and I've read some of the papers, too, that climate warming could lead to perhaps more of these or perhaps a relationship to some of these disruptions. So, you know, I, I, this comes to mind because I saw a tweet by a very prominent personality on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that said, it's amazing how the scientists stop talking about climate change during winter. And I think for many people, uh, you know, people don't sort of understand the notion that we'll always have winter, whether climate warming happens or not. But you actually made a statement that climate warming may be linked to the polar vortex activity in some way. Can you talk a little little more about that?
1: Yeah. So I I think what's not disputable is that we have been seeing over the record, the satellite record. So about since 1979, 1980, we have seen uh, more of these polar vortex disruptions. And the pole vortex is is less frequently in its very strong, stable state. So I think that no one will argue with me. What they'll argue is, is this something being caused by anything or is it just some kind of random, you know, everything and a lot of things in climate go through, uh, you know, oscillations or variations. And this is just some normal variations. You know, it's noise or, you know, it's part of the chaos of the system. And I've been arguing, no, it's not some random occurrence, but it actually is is being forced at least partially by changes in the Arctic. So uh, you know, again, I, it, it's climate change, but it's really uh, it's in particular Arctic change. Uh, is this
0: the Arctic amplification that we're talking about? Yeah. Here? So
1: yeah, definitely, absolutely. So uh, we use our Arctic amplification that the Arctic is is as the warming in the Arctic is accelerating relative to the rest of the globe. Whether it's two, three, and a paper came out four times the rest of the globe, but it's clearly warming faster. And I like to use that kind of. I, I like to associate with that accelerated Arctic warming with both. There's been a decrease in Arctic sea ice uh, that I think everybody is aware of and is certainly more well known. But it's also been associated. I like to say it's been associated with an increase in snowfall, uh, especially in the fall months. Uh, so we've been seeing uh, the snow cover has been more extensive across both Eurasia, and North America, in the fall. And I do think that this increase increase in snow snow cover or snowfall in the fall months, and the decrease in the sea ice. So what's key about the sea ice is that it's not homogeneous, the melting of sea ice, but rather it's focused in, in particular regions, especially in the North Atlantic sector. Now, the, 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 the Arctic sea that it, it, it's melting the fastest in the winter months is is the Barents Cara Sea. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that, but... It's near Scandinavia, so if you kind of just picture the area near Scandinavia over towards northwestern Russia, that, that area is seeing the most accelerated Arctic uh, sea ice melt in the cold season, let's say. And uh, I think that combination of less ice uh, in this Barents-Kara Seas or near Scandinavia and more snowfall, especially across Siberia, uh, is, is optimal for disrupting the polar vortex. Yeah. So that's my I attribute that this increase in these polar vortex disruptions to these changes that are occurring in the Arctic.
0: No, I, I, I wanted to kind of go to break, but I, I want to follow up on that before I before I yeah. forget. Can, can't we I know you said people will argue with you about some of that. Yeah. Can, can, can you test it? I mean, are our models able to sort of. Yeah. See, so, see
1: okay. so, again, this is where I kind of again, continues the disagreement or debate between me and a lot of people in the community. I don't think the model. I think the models really struggle with uh, polar vortex, you know, polar vortex disrupt, uh, variability and the influence or kind of the response of the troposphere and our weather to polar vortex disruption. So I think the models really struggle. So people say, well, if we run model, we run the model out, you know, hundred years, we don't really see any changes in the polar vortex you know, variability. I mean, or, you know, it's a lot of actually. It's a bit uh, ambiguous. I mean, some outrun show it's going to get stronger the polar vortex. Some show maybe a little weaker. But people, but they, generally, people say there's really not much change. So what we're seeing in the observational record is really random. It's just part of the you know noise of the system. Um, uh, it's not being forced by anything. Uh, and I'm arguing. You know uh, it is uh, that but you know the models don't show up because the, the models have a problem. They have a deficiency. We did have, you know so we had a paper talking about this and um, and maybe that's where you saw some of the tweets associated with you know, <laughs> it pretty high, it was a high profile paper so you know'm um, happy that feel fortunate that it was had happened but um, we did run a model and the model did get it, but it was a simplified model and you know it was pretty strong forcing but, uh, so that there are a lot of actually modeling experiments looking at this. Uh, But I I think we're not going to come to a conclusion or consensus anytime soon. This will remain an area of debate and um, further exploration.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Judah Cohen, talking about polar vortex and Arctic amplification, sea ice variability and so forth and and climate change. Um, They are related in some ways. I know it's counterintuitive for the person that wants to tweet me and say it's snowing today. What happened to climate change? Well, it's probably winter in a place that gets snow, but there are relationships. And I think that uh, Dr. Cohen has done a nice job of talking about what some of those relationships are. Now I want to sort of circle back to uh, when seasonal forecasting, particularly as it relates to winter. Um, again, we're coming into winter here. What have you seen as the biggest advances or changes in the way we think about seasonal forecast uh, as you've looked over your career? What, what has changed the most?
1: Yeah. Uh... <laughs> For me, that's a loaded question. Um, I don't, know, you know, I, for for the field as a whole, I don't think much. I mean, you know, it, it, it's I feel like we're like a one trick as a community or almost a one trick pony. Um, it's it's Enso all the time, you know. Uh, and if you look at the dynamical models, you know, uh, people tell me about climate variability, and and um, you know what I'm pointing to is climate variability. It's not. <laughs> You know, it's not a signal, but it's really the noise. But if you look at, let's say, the the four, we had three La Ninas in a row. And if I showed you the winter forecast from the dynamical miles the past three winters, and I left the dates out, you wouldn't know which one was which. <laughs> I mean, right. you couldn't even, you're probably almost ready to tell me they're all the same, they're all the same forecast for the same winner. I and mean, they're not, because it comes down to, I mean, the dynamical forecast, I you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I got to try to be a politician here, diplomatic, but um. But 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 I, I I've tried to point this out. If you look at the winter, again, this is winter only. Summer is a is different thing. But you'll see that basically the dynamical models, for all their complexity and supposedly capture all this different variability, um, all they basically are is, you know, this radiative forcing signal, right? Increasing greenhouse gases. So you got pretty much universal warmth, with the exception of a Enso signal across North America. So <laughs> it'll be always warm for all of Eurasia. And if it's a La Nina like this past three winters, you'll get kind of cold up there near Alaska, northwestern Canada, warm across much of the U.S. And then if it's El Nino, it'll be still very you know it'll be universally warm across Eurasia, and you'll get warm up towards you know Canada, Alaska, and then you'll get a little bit of cold you know near the Gulf Coast. <laughs> and uh, don't take my word for it; look at past you know forecasts, and and it doesn't change from that. So. I, but I, I'm trying to say is we. I'm trying again. You know, people can judge me on my success or not. But I'm trying to say we can actually try to understand the behavior of the polar vortex, um, and so.
0: So your, your premise. So your premise. And i sorry for the interruption. But I just want to make sure our listeners are clear on this. And I because I think this is something I've learned from listening to you today. Your premise is that I hear you say we, we really need to as a community move beyond so much anchoring in the ENSO signal uh, to perhaps a more sort of combined ENSO so polar vortex signal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, again, the models struggle with this. I mean, I, for whatever reason, the models, there's no influence that I could see on these long-range forecasts from the polar vortex on the models. We do know if the polar vortex is weaker, it's going to be more widespread cold. And if the polar vortex is stronger, it's going to be more widespread warm. But the models always show widespread warm with the exception of some ENSO signal across uh, North America. Yeah, And this, this winter is no exception to that. Uh, even, you know, I think the December forecasts were quite warm for 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 across the whole northern hemisphere and that's looking <laughs> like a good forecast. <laughs> uh, um and again, um so I think we can understand whether we have going to have a weaker or a stronger polar vortex that would help, you know, better define the cold, you know, uh, maybe it's, you know, I, I and again, I trying to point this out in, in the literature that almost always the dynamical forecasts are too warm compared to what, you know, eventually what the observations are. Um, yeah because they're missing this. Uh, And I'm trying to use the Arctic predictors, you know, less sea ice, more snow means a weaker polar vortex. Uh, What are we missing,
0: Judah? If if the models are not doing a good job with this, is it some observation that we're missing that needs to be in the model? I don't
1: think, you know, it's a very difficult problem because one thing models, I think everybody would agree, uh, blocking, high latitude blocking. So this occurrence of like high pressure, high lumbering, high pressure systems, like we're seeing right now, you know, across the... Across the northern hemisphere is really critical and, and it has to be and the models have to not only cor- correctly predict it at the right time but they also have to correct the, the longevity or duration of it <laughs> and that's very very difficult um and again even if they you know and and, and but, but that's just one problem the other problem is even if you get a polar vortex disruption the models at, at longer leaves will show that, that has no influence on our weather so like the Texas freeze, I mean, that was a big event. That was an historical once in a lifetime event. And the models, you know, t- two weeks out for sure, missed it. And they only really started getting it about a week out, even though there was a very large disruption of the polar vortex, you know, you know, rel- you know of that phase or type. And um, and then the models really, you know, you would think. And so if they're not going to get it a week out, I don't see how they're getting it. You know, three months. <laughs> and so it's it's difficult, but I, I, yeah, I also you know again I do think that are the dynamical models. People thought knew Enso and were comfortable with the Enso signal, and and they tuned the model to be to capture the Enso signal. <laughs> so um, and that's why I think the models, no matter what, show you know the kind of the classical Enso signal because that's what they were tuned to do. And the highlights were kind of a, an afterthought, and I think we. The, we need to try to, be, you know, better capture. But again, I, I it, it is a tough problem. I'm not you know, I don't it's, I don't think just putting a few bodies on it is going to solve it in a few in a few weeks or anything.
0: Yeah, it, it it really is. But I think you've elucidated the problem clearly. And I, I think people need to understand that, um, that that this is sort of still fertile ground for research and understanding. Yeah. And this is and again, I guess this is I my like...
1: perspective. I, I want to make it clear I'm, I'm not representing oh. the climate community here. And I've we got have
0: you on here because we want your perspective and we know you're an expert. And yes, it is important for the listeners to know that there's there's often disagreement and debate and uh, discourse in the peer-reviewed literature, and that's how it's supposed to be done. Um, not in editorials and tweets, but uh, have a scholarly discussion, publish your results, and let the experts debate. And I think that's what Judah uh, is talking about.
1: You know and uh, you know I gave a talk recently and somebody came up to me and said, You can only learn learn cause and effect from the models. You absolutely cannot learn it from the observational doing observational analysis. And I thought about it, but I mean, obviously, I don't agree because I made a career out of it. But when I think about stratosphere-troposphere coupling, so uh, you know, uh, yeah, so the kind of the interactions between the polar vortex and our weather, pretty much everything that we know about it has been learned from the observations, and the models have only been playing catch up. And you know, we've had to change, you know, modify the miles to, to capture what we know is correct. Um, so,
0: yeah, it's, I think it's a tough problem and certainly one that I, we will be looking forward to your and others insights on as we draw to a close here. Any sort of sort of summary statements on what you see for this winter?
1: Yeah. OK. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been avoiding the punchline. <laughs> I, I do think it's a tough call. Uh, I'm having a tough time. I mean, it's always challenging because it's you know, it's complex and the different factors. Um you know our forecast, our winter forecast, is colder than the dynamical forecast. You know it's hard for it not to be most most winters, but the, the the signals are are weak and mixed. So I'm not. There's not a very strong signal emerging. The snow cover was slightly above normal. The sea ice was slightly below normal. So that favors a kind of a weaker vortex, but not very much. Not a very strong signal there. Uh, I do think that uh, the the um, the background or kind of the, kind of the environment is favorable, the stretch, elongating polar vortex events, more so than a sun stratospheric warming. Uh, so I'm looking for that. I think if we do get a lot of cold, I mean, the kind of the, the wrench, the monkey wrench here, or the fly in the ointment type of thing is where something <laughs> like I wasn't going to anticipate. I don't know if anybody really was. There's this big high pressure that's kind of moving over Greenland. So if it that high pressure right now is kind of closer to the Urals and Scandinavia, Kara seas that's really favorable for disrupting the polar vortex. And if it would stay there, I'd be very, you know, comfortable saying, I, you know, really look for a, a, a large disruption of the polar vortex. But now it's moved over to Greenland. <laughs> and I don't know where it's going to go from there. But from there, I don't think it's really uh in you know has much influence on the polar vortex, but it does bring cold it is associated or related to colder weather across northern Europe, northern Asia, and also the eastern US. And also um if people that have looked at snowstorms in the east along the East coast have noted that typically a precursor to them is this high pressure over Greenland. So it could be a very interesting month. I mean, December has been recently quite mild, uh, milder than you know January and certainly February, uh, relative to normal, <laughs> not, you know not relative to the other months. Uh, but this this looks like this is going to buck that trend, um, and so. But again, it's it where that hype. I mean, I think over Greenland, it's kind of in kind of neutral, <laughs> and I'm not. I don't know where it's, you know. It, will it get back to Ural Scandinavia, where I think it can disrupt the polar vortex and lean our winter colder, or kind of from Greenland, you know, go can go obviously go different places or just dissipate and disappear. Uh, if it just disappeared, I think we would, ha- it would favor a milder winter. A,
0: a milder winter. That's- yeah,
1: That's I mean, like- we need that high latitude blocking uh, to get that, you know, to disrupt the polar vortex and to get colder weather.
0: You know, I I know a little about that because I mean, you know, my colleague Tom Mote here at the University of Georgia <laughs> thinks about some of these things, too. And he often refers to your work. In fact, I, well,
1: well, we it. have a we have a uh, and a National Science Foundation proposal we're collaborating on.
0: Yeah, I think he mentioned that. And, I, yeah. and I've been on a couple of the students uh, graduate committees and they've been thinking about these blocking highs and up around Greenland and so forth. One quick question that came yeah. to mind just as I was listening to you talk and I've, because I know our field is one that likes indices and indexes and, and scales. I mean, I was talking to someone re- in my class about the uh, atmospheric rivers and then now there are these categories for atmospheric rivers in the same way there are hurricanes. Are there scales or indices that indicate the state of the polar vortex? Like you you talked about this elongated, I mean, are there different have people started to try to carry like you have, have you started to try to characterize
1: these? Yeah, that's a very good question. So. There is there is an index. They look at the strength of the of the western you know the zonal wind we use or the you know the flow of the wind from west to east. That's the strength of that is kind of an index for the polar vortex. So when you get a strong positive number, it's a very strong polar vortex. You know, high positive number. And then if it gets towards zero or negative, that's a very weak polar vortex. I see. That's typically what we call a sun-stratford warming territory. I actually don't think that's the best way to think about the pull. Of I think it's too limiting because it turned to be very binary. It doesn't at all capture what I talked about—the stretch or elongated. But it will not show up in an index whatsoever. I've tried to apply machine learning myself and students and colleagues that I have worked with. That kind of so that to think that that you know the the variability of the pull of work is, is more complex than just by this one you know either or you know strong or weak and. Um, I think that'll help us kind of understand the, the connection between the the polar vortex and our weather. I think it's, it, there's more, it's more, there's more relationship between the polar vortex and our weather than we, than we really fully appreciate or understand.
0: Yeah. It's been an amazing geek out here. This is, this is a beautiful episode. There are some podcast episodes I do that I mean, I enjoy them all, but this was, a tailor-made geek out. So Dang, I really I mean,
1: appreciate we're, we're running out of time. Like well, we we're out of time, here. unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> I
0: wanted to make sure our listeners know where they can find you on social media or the web, either AER or you personally. So if you so have on, on things- Twitter,
1: I'm pretty active on Twitter, at uh, Judah47, not the greatest name, but at uh, Judah47. I do have a blog that I update the winter weather, the, the winter forecast up there will be on the blog. So the November 30th blog. Uh, appropriately enough. Uh, if you just Google search Judicoan Arctic or Judicoan blog, it'll, I'm sure it'll be the first item that pops up.
0: Uh, yeah. And and of course, AER is out there too if people want to know yeah, more about it. Yeah. The
1: and the blog is on the AER website. Uh, okay.
0: Well, this this has been amazing as I knew it would be due to thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And as always, thank you all for listening and bundle up. It's getting cold out there. See you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars.